This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Rape, From Lucretia to Me Too, by Me Too Sanyal. Thanks to Title IX cases, Me Too, and Time's Up, the issue of rape seems to be constantly in the news. But our thinking on the subject has a long history, one that cultural critic Me Too Sanyal elegantly reconstructs. She narrates a history spanning from Lucretia, whose legendary rape and suicide was said to be the downfall of the last Roman king, to second-wave feminism, Tarzan, and Roman Polanski. Sanyal demonstrates that the way we understand rape is remarkably and alarmingly consistent across the ages, even though the world has changed beyond recognition. It is high time for a new and informed debate about sexual violence, sexual boundaries, and consent. Me Too Sanyal shows that our comprehension of rape is closely connected to our understanding of sex, sexuality, and gender. Why is it that we expect victims to be irreparably damaged? When we think of rapists, why do we think of strangers rather than uncles, husbands, priests, or boyfriends? And in this era of Me Too, what should justice look like? Rape from Lucretia to Me Too examines the role of race in the recurrent image of the black rapist, the omission of male victims, and what we mean when we talk about rape culture. Sanyal takes on every received opinion we have about rape, arguing with liberals, conservatives, and feminists alike. Rape from Lucretia to Me Too by Me Too Sanyal, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. But by the time you hear this, I'll be back in the USA. What is it that you find so disturbing about commercial surrogacy, an industry that employs women, often poor women in a poor country, to gestate fetuses carrying the genetic material of more affluent people, often in the West, to whom the baby is then transferred? or maybe sold. My guest today is Sophie Lewis, and she argues in her new book, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, that something is deeply wrong with commercial surrogacy, but it's just not what you might think. What's wrong is the brute labor exploitation taking place at the reproductive crossroads of a racial global capitalist order. A system of racial capitalism that mystifies labor across the board, and that in the case of commercial surrogacy, mystically celebrates brown women's creation of, quote, white babies. What's not wrong is the violation of some mythic perfect pregnancy untouched by capitalist market relations. Gestation, Lewis argues, is just one form of labor exploited under capitalism. Indeed, she argues that surrogacy prohibitionists rely upon the very idealized icon of the bourgeois family that is itself an organizing principle of the commercial surrogacy market, and of capitalism as a whole, too. 
Lewis ruthlessly criticizes every conventional belief about gestating fetuses and making families and demands that you unflinchingly analyze how capitalism dominates people's lives across the board, in the productive sphere, in the social reproductive background, and in areas like commercial surrogacy that blur the lines between the two, making it clear that the distinction between waged work and homework is one that's imposed by capitalism rather than given by nature. Anyhow, I promise that this interview is a fascinating and provocative one. But before we get this started, and I'll keep this quick because I'm sprinting to finish my book so it'll be out in November, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig because you know that I put everything and more into it. And we need your support not only to keep this thing going strong, but also to spend a ton of money right now transcribing our archive so that our episodes are available to everyone. We also, as you well know, have left-wing books to send you in the mail. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here's Sophie Lewis, the author of Full Surrogacy Now. Feminism Against Family, from Verso. Lewis is a Philadelphia-based theorist, communist, unaffiliated PhD, affiliated with the Out of the Woods Ecological Writing Collective, and an occasional translator teaching part-time for the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Sophie Lewis, welcome to The Dig. Hi. When I first heard of international commercial surrogacy a few years ago, my initial response was that I was a bit queasy. At the risk of asking you to psychoanalyze me, <laughs> what was I responding to? And and also, what is commercial surrogacy? <laughs> Those are two good opening questions, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Being hyper, um, hyper honest there. <laughs> yeah, of course. There's a standard definition that I think it's actually good to. I won't. I won't necessarily read it comp- like directly out from the book, but I will. Uh, let me find it. The thing you're responding to about gestational surrogacy that makes you queasy is the illusion of an extreme denaturalization of something deeply fundamental, foundational to nature the ideology of nature we carry around with ourselves or the sort of very building blocks of uh, our identification with our humanity, which really works through things like motherhood and uh, where we came from. The commercial gestational surrogacy industry is uh, dystopian in many ways. There's capitalist wage relation being extended into the province of literal baby making and you know the purpose of a commercial surrogacy arrangement is the manufacture of a neonatal human that will be passed as a kind of legal property to uh, a buyer the commissioning parents is the terminology in that industry you don't have to be a full-blown anti-surrogacy activist a surrogacy abolitionist um as some of the feminists involved uh, call themselves to to find this on some level very repulsive, very repugnant in a kind of almost pre-linguistic way. 
it's only when you sort of start to tease apart what's actually going on or, or rather not going on in this industry that I think you you can become a bit more comfortable with the idea that this is an industry among industries under capitalism. And in fact, as the black feminists in the 1980s were saying, when the industry started coming along, nothing new, you know, something that in fact we are already familiar with without really realizing it. So what I mean by that is that while on its face, commercial gestational surrogacy elicits this reaction of, you know, that is wrong, that, you know, there's something deeply wrong about exploiting gestational labor power in the service of, you know, economically more powerful biogenetic families. But as people like Angela Davis were saying, and the legal scholar Anita Allen, who uh, wrote a uh, an essay called The Black Surrogate in the 1980s, that the the basics of this relation as a labor relation have been foundational, certainly to the reproduction of the American private nuclear household for an extremely long time. So while the commercialization um, and sort of literalization of relationships of surrogacy uh, is, is a new thing, it's perhaps better to understand it as a chance for us to become more aware because of something becoming more obvious about the foundational kind of constitution of uh, the, the, the so-called natural family. You know, Kathy Weeks has this line about how the essence of surrogacy is about having figures, shadowy figures, excised from the family photo. And what the sort of black feminist Marxist intervention seems to me to have been in the 80s was that, well, we're calling this situation that people are making a lot of noise about and feeling a lot of revulsion about new, you know, as in new reproductive technologies. But in fact, um, there is nothing new at all about a relationship in which proletarian, often racialized, feminized laborers are bringing their bodies and labors into, you know, the service of a white household. Not always white, but certainly the the image under which the bourgeois family um, has ex- sort of has been generalized and often internalized by many other classes is a sort of white image which relies on a sort of a series of help meets, wet nurses, and so on and so forth, um, who are kind of shadowy fig- figures um, on the side. In other words, you argue something is definitely wrong with the commercial surrogacy industry, but it's just not at all what surrogacy prohibitionists say is wrong with it. You ask, quote, is gestational surrogacy intrinsically the apogee of alienation, a violation that can only ever be arranged in different feudal, neoliberal, settler colonial flavors? And and your answer, of course, is a strong no. You write that this total dystopia vision requires both a, an obscene celebration of more conventional forms mm-hmm. of wage labor under capitalism, at least implicitly, at least by implication, and, and also the, the erasure of, of surrogate workers. My question is, who are surrogate workers? And how do you how do you as a Marxist feminist think about their work and the work of anyone gestating a fetus? People who sign up to be commercial gestational surrogates today might be 
quite different things. This is also something that is true of other industries, including, for example, sex work. You might have a fairly uh, boutique, uh, if you like, commercial gestational surrogate based in California. Uh, she might be uh, someone, this is this is something that academic papers have identified as a trend, a military wife, you know, a so-called, um, yeah, a military wife with great health insurance uh, via the military who is making use of the absence of said husband on some kind of military deployment to uh, and and uh, making you taking advantage of this great obstetric care provision to uh, gestate babies that are the genetic property in this logic of you know a given set of buyers or, or in some cases it might be commercial uh, it might be altruistic of course I confine myself to mainly looking at the uh, the commercial side of this of this new uh, configuration but uh, sometimes, particularly among the affluent, so-called altruistic, i.e. unpaid commercial surrogacy arrangements do occur. Or, you know, and, and this is the majority case, you might be a low income, but not as a rule among the lowest income Indian uh, worker. You might be a person in Gujarat, in India, who is otherwise typically employed in garment manufacture or glass crushing, those being the sort of opposite ends of the spectrum of employment generally reported um, by employees at uh, a given clinic that I use as my case study in the book. You know, you you have uh, aspirations. The typical one named is about having a house of your own to raise your own children in. The the, the image of the private property uh, horizon for gestational surrogate in India seems extremely ideological, uh, pivotal for the the people justifying the sort of outsourcing model of this of this industry. By outsourcing, I mean, the component whereby people from the global north travel, you know, to the global south to avail themselves of gestational services that are cheaper there than they would be at home. That's not the only component of, for, for instance, Indian clinics. You know, Indian clinics uh, serve Indian uh, commissioning parents, but the media tends to focus on the sort of sensational visuals of what some scholars have called cross-racial, cross-racial uh, transnational reproductive tourism, where, you know, you get one of these gestational employees um, having a C-section where her boss is lifting a kind of a racially other baby out of her body. That tends to be what, that tends to be the image that gestational surrogacy kind of travels under, you know, it's it with its shock value. But yeah, um, so those are the two kind of typical images of a gestational surrogate, uh, a Californian who is being paid perhaps $33,000 or there are, I mean, the, the the hubs of the industry are constantly changing and India has in fact banned, uh, which I found very rude, just as my book was going to press, the uh, commercial and homosexual elements of the industry. So currently things in India are up in the air and it's no longer really, I mean, I, I foresee this changing again, but right for, you know, right now there are actually no. So how do you as a Marxist feminist think about this work and the work of anyone gestating a fetus? 
Well, someone gestating a fetus under capitalism, whether they're doing it uh, for money or not, are, you know, creating uh, value for capitalism. Maria Rosa de la Costa, uh, one of the thinkers associated with the Wages for Housework platform that I, you know, draw a lot of my inspiration from in Full Surrogacy Now, talks about the sort of capitalist function of the uterus, which is the, the function whereby the injunction to produce babies who will become workers is something that robs gestators, which is my term, some people don't like it, for people who could potentially gestate. One might also say women in that context, I prefer to be more specific. But yeah, it robs us of our creative capacities and, and our sex life. So I think gestating is a, a form of work. It's, this, is, this was part of Wages for Housework's original statement. They said every miscarriage is a workplace accident, which means that pregnancy is not just in a metaphorical wishy-washy sense, which is what people tend to like to say, you know, pregnancy is hard work is something that people say a lot, even as they really ridicule the idea that it is literally an expenditure of labor power involving a sort of unity of design and execution and so on. Because it's a labor of love. But yes, right, exactly. But uh, no, I'm serious about it, even as... Um, other wages for housework thinkers have sort of backed away from this particular component of of their original intervention, and I uh, I think that what commercial surrogates are doing is you know very much the same thing that you know unpaid quote unquote like natural or normal gestational workers are doing, except it has been appropriated uh, into a capitalist relation of extraction, circulation, accumulation. You write that human life is perhaps, quote, the ultimate commodity fetish. And you're citing, I think, anthropologist Nancy Shepard Hughes there. Mm. My question is, first, how does the mystification of the production of life by way of gestation and, and birth fit, fit into a broader Marxist analysis of the mystification of labor in the creation of value more generally? And second, and this is sort of following up on your on your last comment around wages for house, housework, how have Marxists and Marxist feminists conventionally understood pregnancy and childbirth? And where do you fit into and depart from that history? I love the way you put that. I think uh, linking the mystification around this construct, life itself, with mystification around um, labor is... Actually, yes, that is that is actually what I'm doing in the book to some extent. Uh, I appreciate you sort of showing me that. It's become particularly apparent to me that this is a book that is touching on a certain sore spot right now for elements of a natalist, far-right, evangelical kind of, uh, well, self-designated pro-life in my view, kind of fetus fetishist uh, movement. I've heard your Twitter mentions have gotten interesting recently. Oh, boy, <laughs> yes. Well, um, <laughs> we can talk about that if you like. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no need. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I would say that what is invisibilized in the kind of doctrine of um, life itself is, is of course, the ways in which, um, uh, and this is where my sort of critical Harrowavian, Harrowavianism comes in, the ways in which we are implicated in sort of unmaking specific forms of life 
always at the same time as we are sort of constructing them and building them. We are we are, we can't get away from a certain degree um, of violence. In a sense, there is a responsibility we owe to ourselves and you know and to each other around you know deciding not to reproduce certain things and it's 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 a dimension of labor including care labor because i i believe that care is creative and makes things it makes certain worlds it makes certain futures it also chooses not to make other things it chooses to unmake therefore other kinds of you know human being um other forms of sociality there isn't there isn't isn't a way to be simply pro-life, you know, in, in, a, in a politically liberatory way. I am, you know, for abortion because I think it's a good thing. It, it's good for people. And also because I support the right to stop doing gestational work, uh, whatever the reason. I see no humane way to advocate for forcing people into a forced labor relation. I, uh, I think people for you know for whatever reason have a have a complete right if you want to frame it in terms of right you know to kill the part of themselves that is the fetus in a pregnancy and i you know what what seems to be challenging to my uh army of trolls at the moment sent by tucker carlson <laughs> is that you can oh. you can think that um a fetus and an abortion are questions of healthcare and of killing you know at the same time, in full surrogacy now, I sort of zero in a little bit on an incredibly overlooked figure called Mary O'Brien, who was one of the sort of only people to really make a forceful case for um, pregnancy being something that really builds history. And she, you know, she was a sort of Marxist Hegelian. Uh, she was also a, a Scottish midwife working class person, really fascinating figure. And uh, she she really could write. I, I'm deeply, you know, indebted to Mary O'Brien and her The Politics of Reproduction, which synthesizes a lot of the feminist literature for me, <laughs> luckily, <laughs> and takes it to task wherever it doesn't actually acknowledge the kind of historical, historically contingent material character of uh, pregnancy sufficiently. So that's, so, you know, she looks at people like de Beauvoir and Kate Millett and uh, sort of corrects them in a certain sense. Ultimately, I reject Mary O'Brien for having, you know, deep blind spots around queerness, um, around uh, traditions of polymaternalism, around the family, which I do not see as a good thing, around transness, although I recognize that it was very much de rigueur to be trans-exclusionary among some parts of academia in the 1980s. Yes, so so my, you know, my reading of the, the sort of Marxist approach to gestating is it sort of takes a very brilliant Marxist feminist, Mary O'Brien, as its kind of guide. You know, she has a lot of zingers to do with the sort of magical ways in which Marxists think children seem to appear spontaneously. The, the classic kind of view is that literally reproductive, although I, I, I kind of prefer to use words like procreative to be, to be clear, 
for reasons I can explain. This kind of labor, quote, does not produce value, does not produce needs, and therefore does not make history nor make men, unquote. That was her sort of summation of how um, Marxists see pregnancy. And, you know, as a general rule, Marxists have also looked at surrogacy and seen it as the epitome of forced alienated labor. And, you know, this is because in the phrase of one of these figures, Marvin Glass, the contracted gestator's activity is not spontaneous activity. It belongs to another. It is the loss of self. So this is something that is particularly apparently the case in surrogacy uh, and not uh, necessarily, although I would, you know, although it's clearly also the case in a lot of other kinds of capitalist work. I spend a lot of time sort of considering this as gently as I can and trying to tease out while the, why there is this deep kind of gestational exceptionalism among Marxists when thinking about work and anti-work. And uh, I basically conclude that because we have an actual shop floor here, historically, peopled by waged gestational workers who have a politics uh, of their own, have a series of demands, have analyses of what they are doing, you know, it makes absolutely no sense to continue with this kind of moral theorizing over uh, gestational surrogates' heads of this type, of this kind of Marxist type, which which is basically inconsistent and often rem- uh, amounts to an anti-commodification position um, that wants to abolish the workplace without abolishing the work. Let's pause right there, because something we should explain before we get any further is the distinction you're making between work and labor. Lay out that distinction and what labor, including gestation and going into labor, but um bum, uh, might might look like if it wasn't work because we lived in an emancipated society. Because you argue for a struggle against and for the abolition of work and value. But but obviously, humans will always have to toil even under a much better system. So explain the the distinction you're making. Oh, it's quite simple. Um, you know, my, my sense is that labor is a good word for the, um, the activities we perform that interact with non-human elements of nature. We will be stuck with um, that no matter what. Uh, work is a kind of is a useful term I find for the the stealing of those processes in capitalist relations. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking of this line by Silvia Federici, which is that nothing so successfully stifles our lives as the transformation into work of those activities and relations that most satisfy our desires. So the, 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 the transformation into work of labors that we could be otherwise doing out of a kind of desire you know even even potentially toilet cleaning might be something that we could have a desire to do were we not sort of compelled um to do it for alienating reasons under a world governed by by profit and and value i think uh when i yeah when i say work i'm talking about something that i want to as you say abolish but that doesn't mean that i think it will vanish i don't think we will be left even in the you know in a utopian situation with no work unfortunately i think we will be, we will be left with some 
sort of uh, unpleasant kind of some drudgery. Some drudgery. Yeah. Um, the the thing about um, gestational work, uh, which which is deeply sort of alienated, I think, uh, in a world where, and this is the Dalla Costa point, the the product you're creating is going to be immediately stolen by the capitalist class and the and by capital itself um you know this would be deeply different mary o'brien has a very sort of cryptic but very suggestive line which is that you know uh, in a society liberated from capitalism and patriarchy quote children will be different unquote my my sense is that you know that that would be the case partly because children will be liberated children's liberation will have returned um i think to this you know um to the sensibilities of progressives and revolutionaries, this thing that has kind of been lost sight of, but used to be kind of theorized by people like Shulamith Firestone, um, who saw the, the private nuclear household as somewhere where uh, women and children are sort of produced as, as workers and who can only really get their freedom together uh, by abolishing themselves as such. Gestational labor is scary <laughs> um as well as other things as well um this is also something i think i've been liable to be misunderstood about i open my book and uh continue towards the end of it with a description of the technicalities and mechanics of uh hemochorial placentation <laughs> which is the sort of biological biological term for the the setup we have uh as the mammal Homo sapiens, a deeply unfortunate placenta. Yeah, I would say I would say you open your your book on a. There's a kind of interesting structure to the tone of of your book, where you open on what feels like a strategically antinatalist, anti childbirth note. You talk about pregnancy's little discussed morbidity, how quote biophysically speaking, gestate, gestating is an unconscionably destructive business. You even suggest that pregnancy is a cancer of sorts. But then you end the book by arguing that gestation and childbirth already contain within them a queer communist horizon because they break down this notion of of unitary human individuals. And you point to surrogacy and how it demonstrates that that the uter- uterus is sort of nobly indifferent to the DNA of the fetus. Mm. It gestates. <laughs> I take it this structure wasn't an, an accident. Well, um, yeah, even even in the beginning, I think I, I I hope I convey a certain kind of ambivalence um, about extreme sports like gestating. You know, I I think um, <laughs> in, in a, a liberated society, you know, of course, some people would still want to do things that are internally kind of ravaging and dangerous. I mean, look, I'm kind of a pervert, you know, I hope other people are too. There's something deeply sort of exciting and sublime and and strange about being invaded from the inside like that by something that you can't really simply choose um, to let go of. Um, Unlike in other species where, as as I detail, you know, pregnancies tend to be something that can actually be dropped without undue damage you know there's not there's not so high a risk of kind of hemorrhage and uh, and so on um in in other species which is you know which is one of the reasons why it is in our species that the whole question of reproductive rights and justice is so is so is so fraught there is uh there is a sort of 
makeup we have, unfortunately, that I believe we could uh, dedicate intensive sort of gestator-led scientific inquiry into attenuating with 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 technology, medicine, all kinds of things, whereby, you know, the last thing that will stay alive if a pregnant person runs into some kind of um, life-threatening difficulty is likely to be the pregnancy. This is, this is, we are rigged in such a way that mama doesn't come first. Um, I wonder if we could biohack that. Unfortunately, the people right now who are sort of leading uh, the charge in pursuing partial automation in pregnancy are not doing so out of a desire to, you know, attenuate the burdens of gestational work or multiply the options for people who might want to get together and uh, manufacture a fetus. You know, they are doing so because of their obsessive concern for the fetus, um, their desire to construct the human fetus as a medical patient, their the basic objective being to sort of remove the, the, the gestator and their or, or her inconvenient sort of power to you know and as i say it's it's a it's an already really constricted and constrained power unfortunately to say no to the fetus to to kill uh, or to remove that part of her body uh, from from herself and so that the, the the goal currently for those who are trying to um alleviate and and experimentally automate uh, the uterus, uh, which is happening in Philadelphia, um, by the way, they're not, you know, their objective is not the queer gestational commune. We're going to have to really move fast uh, in sort of taking this over from below because their goal is is actually to, you know, quote unquote, quote, solve the problem of abortion by making it, quote unquote, unnecessary because, a, you know, a preemie, a premature neonate could in, in their scenario should it prove successful and there is already FDA approval for many of these sort of uh, biobag type prototypes it would be you know potentially illegal in terms of what you were just talking about though one one thing that's that's striking about commercial surrogacy in India is all of this state of the art healthcare being provided to surrogate workers who would otherwise be denied quality healthcare which is pretty chilling for a lot of reasons including extremely high maternal mortality. You write, then, that that the problem isn't the technologization of pregnancy, but instead the social reality within which pregnancy's technologization already exists, including but beyond commercial surrogacy. And, And the way that technology exists, of course, is within highly unequal capitalist social relations. Explain your take on technology and pregnancy and what sort of broader theory of technology you subscribe to? My perspective on um, technology in pregnancy is um, influenced by um, the xenofeminists, by Donna Haraway, and by certain kinds of black feminists, especially queer black feminists, those inclined towards Afrofuturism and um, a rejection of the sort of shibboleths of nature um, as tacitly sort of colonial and or settler colonial kind of uh, constructs. My sense is my, my um, you know, 
provocative uh, proposal is that all reproduction is assisted. You know, I if you think about the implication of the phrase assisted reproduction, it's it's that some reproduction is unassisted, whereas <laughs> people all across the political spectrum think they agree with the pro pro proposition, um, it takes a village. And uh, I, I extend the, um, the notion that it takes a village all the way into the pre-birth kind of term. You know, I, I think about pregnancy as something that involves a sort of plurality of techniques, of actors, of sort of relations, of provisioning, and so on and so forth. So when I think about the so-called natural birth or natural childbirth movement, um, which is a sort of ideological and uh, activist formation that has its roots in the post-war period and was oddly kind of... Um, paternalistically led uh, by people including Grantly Dick Reed, a man who went to Africa to discover and report back to the West how uh, black women there experienced no pain and no fear in connection with childbirth and then applied these principles to various schools of childbirth in England and Western Europe and uh, North America. This was obviously one of competing kind of uh, tendencies in this direction, including Lamaze, uh, which uh, and uh, and which I'm not necessarily trying to sort of reject wholesale. Um, but natural childbirth is is a, a deeply sort of unnatural thing. It, it has a whole host of sort of approaches and artificial kind of mechanisms within it that you can sort of style your pregnancy according to and uh, I you know the you're asking about the kind of heuristics I use to think about nature and technology and well you know um, I'm trained as a, a critical geographer and it's in geography that Marxists and eco-Marxists and queer feminists have been sort of denaturalizing the operations of nature uh, for some decades. Um, so so when it comes to natural birth, you know, while I'm with Shulamith Firestone on, you know, a whole host of things, notwithstanding her, her, you know, blindness to questions of white supremacy, which is very serious, you know, she really, um, she really hasn't got it right when she, uh, albeit hilariously, uh, sort of mounts her invective against natural childbirth and, you know, talks about you know, childbirth as something akin to shitting a pumpkin, as the famous phrase has it, you know. Um, <laughs> she, she has a wonderful dialogue between sort of herself and the school of the great experience, as she calls it, which, you know, and, and she's, she's completely right about a lot of this, you know. Um, there is a sort of repro-normative coercion involved in sort of ideologically sort of placing pregnancy uh, among a sort of series of untouchably sublime experiences the, the notion the very true reality that many people experience something sublime it, when they gestate is then turned into a sort of injunction i'm not interested in saying that pregnancy is one thing or another clearly people have completely different experiences of it the idea that we shouldn't have any choice um, about entering into a situation that is um, so risky and um, also that there, you know, there's this sort of 
sense of of compulsory that it's compulsory that you report joy about pregnancy and 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 having children which then makes postpartum depression which is far more common than post abortion depression makes it all the more tricky of a condition to deal with because it's so highly stigmatized precisely yes um the construct you know natural childbirth in practice is not something i have um all that much to quarrel with you know um there's a fantastic uh long-standing grassroots movement of doulas uh, and midwives and people who you know are historically the heirs of the uh witches and indigenous sort of healers or multiply sort of reproductive kind of technicians in communities who you know were expelled from the gestational workplace with the rise of uh patriarchal and uh proto-capitalist obstetrics you know this is a well-known history uh we find in in histories like like federici's caliban and the and the witch and of course there are i mean there are things that involve a certain kind of mystification practiced in some of these movements, but as a rule, there are you know there are many sort of um, queer cyborg, trans inclusive practices to be found in the doula ing movement, and they are just quietly getting on with a trans inclusive approach to reproductive justice, which is you know far in advance of the mainstream media's sense of what is possible within medical practice, uh, particularly in the UK where I come from, you will find these kind of articles about about how we will be banned from saying breastfeeding and 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 pregnant women and, um, we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In reality, you know, you can write books like mine, which sort of uncouple gestating from gender to a large degree. You can quietly just get on as many many people have with um caring for gestators of of more than one gender and you know uh, the the fabric of the universe doesn't implode but i will say that um my my problem with the term natural when it comes to vindicating birthers and gestators um is just that it throws tacitly sort of unnatural figures uh, amongst us, potentially under the bus. It not necessarily in practice, as I say, but I take from Haraway the notion that technology has been co-constitutive of the human right, right from the beginning. You know, the 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 notion of the cyborg is the notion that we began to have technics involved in our very flesh as soon as we started cooking food. The idea of an unnatural pregnancy, you know, implied by by the uh, the ideal natural pregnancy is one that sort of presumably involves untoward uh, quantities of uh, assistance or medical intervention and so on. And what people are really, I think, uh, when they're objecting to something real uh, rather than just something kind of phobically constructed, you know, as as weak or, you know, uncourageous or something it what they're reacting to when it is valid is is simply the wrong kind of alienation it's the power relations in the maternity ward and uh that's why you know i i'm 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 not interested in sort of natural versus unnatural i'm interested in you know who has 
the power. So the the in the context of the so-called womb farm, um, it's it's about who's running the farm. You know, not so much. I don't. It, the phrase doesn't tell me so much in the way that the kind of sensationalist moral critics. Um, who call everything The Handmaid's Tale or whatever, think think it tells us, you know? Um, I want to know more about the, the class relations in play. Let's discuss the, the concrete world of commercial surrogacy a little more directly, particularly the situation in India, which is a focus of your book and was, at least until perhaps very recently, a center of the global surrogacy economy. What is or was the situation in India and who is Naina Patel who who you alluded to who you mentioned earlier I believe that this TED talking Oprah approved surrogacy clinic owner really the apogee perhaps of the whole industry and how does Patel represent her enterprise so as to simultaneously celebrate it as an anti-poverty initiative and as a labor of love Dr. Nina Patel is this kind of girl boss um, who, uh, <laughs> you know, really carved out the discursive space for commercial gestational surrogacy on a world stage. She was one of the, you know, first really successful bioclinical capitalists to, uh, you know, innovate in this area. But not only that, really sort of take it on to you know, myriad documentaries and talk shows. And as you mentioned, uh, this included Oprah, who uh, was initially, you know, skeptical about the exploitation involved, but who was entirely sold by Patel's, you know, considerable charisma and ended up pronouncing Patel's business, uh, quote unquote, women helping women. I love it. And the reason for picking this clinic as a case study, uh, which is, you know, something I'm not alone in doing by any means, you know, um, I should be clear, I did not do um, ethnography or field research myself. There is an absolute plethora of ethnographies out there. I was really struck by the number of anthropological, sociological workplace inquiries, although they weren't called that, that was my spin on it, um, that, that have been conducted where, you know, where academics have gone, ideally with some of the local language uh, under their belt, to to report back on this kind of extraordinary new kind of brave new world type situation and and you know as uh as the very well-known philosopher of reproduction Marilyn Strathern put it wryly there will be no shortage of good copy you know when it comes to surrogacy people love to just to talk about it they love to do documentaries on it they love to talk to Naina Patel in a very superficial way honestly and 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 um, respectfully, you know, with some very important exceptions, the academia too is very shallow. You know, it it accepts all these premises that people like Patel are, are saying about the industry that it's completely separate from everyday life. You know, that this is um, something kind of magical, kind of technical, that people like her in her white coat. Uh, can arrange for you to mitigate the, you know, extraordinary hardship that is infertility. So Nina Patel, <laughs> I, I don't know if she has any interest in reading my book. I hope that uh, she doesn't misunderstand it, as some people may. 
as a kind of uh, pro-surrogacy polemic. I mean, it's true that if you if you don't think about the title full surrogacy now at all and ask yourself what, you know, full surrogacy might mean, it's an impossible concept. I, I'm interested in something that might be worthy of the name, but we can go into that later. You know, she she might potentially think that I'm uh, singing her praises Um of course, I actually think she's not if not if her reading comprehension is what I <laughs> yeah is at a very high level. <laughs> no, um, no. If you're listening, Nina, um, you know, with all due respect, you're a class enemy, and your vision of yourself is megalomaniacal. Um, the uh, is that wait? Maybe I should cut that last bit if it's uh, libelous. But you know, Nina Patel has a discourse about what she is doing that literally trades in. Um, this vitalist language uh, of life in particular and and life uh, itself. She thinks that it is in her hands a kind of class-flattened exchange of deep fundamental needs belonging to individual women um, is being kind of trafficked and uh, resolved to everybody's benefit. So on the one hand, you have the tragically childless woman. Uh, she may come from the global north or she may not. Um, and on the other, you have this low-income help meet, local, uh, a local who is deeply, in this narrative, invested in anti-infertility as a social cause. So the commissioning parents in industrial surrogacy become positioned as a kind of um, oppressed class almost, you know, almost akin to, you know, exclusions along the, the the lines of race or class or disability or something. And, you know, Patel is catering to them because there is nothing more sacred in her worldview than the desire for a quote unquote child of one's own. And, uh, you know, her, her hospital is massive. As you say, um, you know, commercial surrogacy is currently illegal in India. I I have to say, I foresee that changing swiftly again. Regardless, you know, her her profits off the back of her gestational employees have been so significant that she's been able to sort of start uh, to, to complete the construction of a quote unquote one-stop shop for all things surrogacy, which is this kind of glittering uh, hospital, um, the Akanksha, where uh, on the top floor, there is a laboratory in which... Um, completely different directions are going to be pursued perhaps in the interim while while surrogacy per se is off the cards there is so much demand for certain kinds of niche medical banking uh you can bank uh your cord blood right the the um the umbilical cord cells that have that are you know according to some new uh, veins of privatized medicine have uh you know special kind of properties for ensuring of specific individual's health later on in life and so on and so forth. There are these kind of offcuts of pregnancy that that Patel can make good capitalist use of in the laboratory in her hospital, uh, even as the commercial surrogacy itself is on pause. And what what I found so interesting about her place in in the in the surrogacy sort of pantheon is you know, her her ability to spin what she's doing um, as feminism very much along the lines of Sheryl Sandberg's um, account of what 
being a feminist means. I want to ask about that in particular. You, you write that she frames her clinic as doing the same sort of development work that micro lending does. It is in this framing development as the empowerment of individual women as as entrepreneurs of sorts to to liberate women from both poverty and patriarchy. Explain how this this ideology, this rhetoric and rhetoric functions with with an Indian and, and global political economy, specifically this demonization of working class husbands sold as liberation of working class women, because Patel figures the husband as the oppressor and not herself. And it is Patel, after all, who is the the boss. Yeah, no, uh, a huge part of the reason why Patel is so eminently kind of uh, televisable, you know, and quotable uh, in the West, in the Anglophone sphere, uh, including the Indian Anglosphere, is because of her kind of, yeah, snappy, kind of catty, pop feminism well it's several things at once really i kind of read it as a as a form of like lean-in feminism at the same time as it draws really heavily on traditions of sort of lady bountiful type parochial um noblesse oblige sorts of activities in in the colonial indian context you know there are these interviews where she talks about how right from childhood she was sort of deeply passionate about going to quote unquote trim the nails and wash the hair of the local adivasi populations because of her her good breeding and and her aristocratic extraction but uh it's something that really operates as a kind of parallel to projects of sort of neoliberal subjectification, such as microfinance. The idea being, and this is very much promulgated by, you know, organs like the World Bank and and the UN and so on. If you, you know, empower third world women, um, you know, you are making sound economic investments. Um, this is a, a plinth of philanthrocapitalism as well that uh, if you only target the sort of oppressed women of the global South, they will, you know, uh, under your benevolent sort of humanitarian feminist gaze, become uh, little entrepreneurs. You know, all they need is a tiny bit of startup capital. And before you know it, they'll be running little chocolate businesses or embroidery, you know, shops or or whatever. Um, and so there's this you know, there's this uh, incredible irony here. Patel doesn't quite have the guts to go the whole distance and frame the actual gestating that her employees are doing as the substantive work in this initiative that she is curating. Um, she starts off by saying that. she She has frequently said that, you know, being a gestational surrogate is quote unquote better work than being a construction worker, a laborer or a maid. That's that's a quote. But then, you know, as she gets herself mired in the logical implications of this assertion of gestating as, you know, a quote, a quote unquote physical job. That's another thing she has said. You know, soon enough, she realizes that she's going to have to talk out of the other side of her mouth and talk about the other things that she puts into her employees' hands as the actual work. So while they are in her dormitory, she makes sure that they 
learn English or learn how to style hair or do makeup or make chocolate or so on and so forth. And that becomes what she then slides in into saying is is the is the actual job training. Instead of uh, capitalist labor relations, what she wants to present going on is sort of the the Indian surrogate worker women not being workers, but doing sort of uh, this sort of like beautifully empathetic, selfless service for infertile women elsewhere. And then she's doing this selfless thing by giving them this job training. So it's actually just this sort of like decommodified care economy is the way she likes to present it when that suits her. Absolutely. Which really exposes some of the sort of tensions in, you know, the uh the whole girl boss kind of construction you can you can be a sort of ruthless business innovator but doing so literally with uteruses is still something a little bit too much you know for a global public to swallow um and it's probably not some you know it's not what she wants to swallow either it's not completely what she wants to see herself as either i believe you know and the demonization of working class husbands Yes, of course. Good point. Um, yeah, no, this is another reason I think why people lap it up. You know, clients at Dr. Patel's clinic hear her in the sound bites broadcast on radio, on television, saying um, in these sort of dramatic speeches she likes to give uh, in her in her beautiful saris and jewelry to assemblies of her employees uh, along the lines of, you know, a husband is always a problem <laughs> and everyone gets to giggle and there are even theater outings that she's organized for her uh, her best employees where they you know they got to see a play which is about a feisty surrogate who is uh, pursuing surrogacy against her husband's wishes and so on and you know Patel gets to kind of you know absorb the benefits of this illusion of transgression and so on she you know she is enabling these girls to, you know, stick the middle finger up at their husbands in the ways they always wanted to, as though, you know, as though working class women couldn't and haven't always been doing that themselves, you know, and as though saying fuck you to your husband simply to embrace. As though they need a rich lady to uh, teach them how to do that. Your boss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's also deeply ironic in that Patel requires permission from husbands. Doesn't you know? She she doesn't actually in any uh, material way modify the norms of the industry, which rely on um, an infantilization of the gestational surrogate via consent and approval required from you know from husbands and fathers. But um, via these small moments, these sort of cosmetic elements of kind of demonization of working class men she gets to enroll yeah a whole a whole plethora of kind of pseudo feminist buy-in you know internationally and locally and uh you know it, it bears no connection whatsoever with her analysis of more affluent men commissioning fathers her own husband for example you know that there is absolutely no sense that the couple form when it is middle to upper class and coming along to kind of collect a baby from the clinic as its property, that there is any kind of problem with uh, heterosexual marriage or, you know, the nuclear household then. Let's talk about that that point a little more. That This important thing that you point to is that Patel's entire enterprise, and in fact, the entire enterprise of commercial surrogacy in many ways, at least in the, this transnational context is premised 
upon the endorsement of, of, of this powerful and deeply rooted morality tale that naturalizes bourgeois families that want a child and that intervenes in and stigmatizes the very sort of poor families that commercial surrogate workers come from. And you write that this organizing principle of, of capitalist political economy is the white middle class nuclear family and that that in turn anchors this this quasi-eugenical racialized order that devalues, stigmatizes, polices, separates, and degrades most every other sort of family. Explain the role of the, the white middle class family, both literally and as like an icon, and how that depends upon other mothers being poor, that the, the ideal of this family can only appear as though it's built upon non-commercial and non-commodified relationships because it depends on the outsourcing of so much family labor. Sorry, that's a mouthful. Broadly speaking, just to sort of lay it out, you know, I um, and and many others, because <laughs> this analysis used to be a bit of a mainstay of several strands of women's liberation thinking, radical feminism, gay liberation and utopian socialism. You know, the family is extremely worthy of abolition. Abolish the family used to be an extremely well-known demand. Why? Well, because and I actually don't go into angles so much as I go into the black feminist critique. But, you know, the 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 analyses kind of dovetail, regardless of which wing of the liberation struggle coalition you, you look at. The uh the nuclear private household, also known as, you know, the family, is the site of the overwhelming majority of the sexualized abuse that goes on on planet earth it is not the haven for many people that it is kind of um uh, set up to be by the family values shibboleth it is also a, a really crucial building block for capitalism and that includes neoliberal and neoconservative brands of capitalism as melinda cooper lays out in her book you know the answer to the the thesis which we find frequently on the left that you know capitalism has already abolished the family or whatever is um no not at all uh, the 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 unit of order for contemporary capitalist um regimes just as it was for earlier ones um is the family in perpetual crisis it is in fact the idea that the family is uh, falling apart that gives a lot of energy and fuel to policies that kind of inject or purport to inject, uh, you know, new life into, into that unit, always at the expense of others, be it queers, refugees from the family, as it were. And don't forget, you know, queer youth are frequently, you know, literal victims, lethal victims of the so-called family uh, and their and their individual families, which requires a whole host of sort of reparative and humanitarian organizations, many of them just voluntary, many of them just kind of activist kind of forms of social reproduction and rescue for queer youth. But also, you know, migrants, people dispossessed for, you know, for any kind of reason, and particularly kind of racial reasons from the dividends that accrue to the, you know, to the, the standard normative family. 
the system that naturalizes uh, this image of the family in the global north, by naturalizes, I mean, you know, constructs it as something we think of as naturally occurring, even self-sustaining. It's a whole project that invisibilizes and mystifies the way in which all kinds of others are actually being dispossessed of that family form in order to maintain it. Uh, and this is something that you kind of see when you pick apart the transaction at the heart of Nina Patel's business. There are other people who have to do sort of deeply unfamiliar things under the aegis of a desire to be a part of that normative family ideal in order to, you know, materially provide for the needs of uh, families in, in the global north, particularly white ones. That basic kind of global care chain is something that Kalindi Vora uh, in her book, Life Support, and then she has a new one out, uh, co-written with uh, Neda Atanasovsky called Surrogate Humanity. That's, um, you know, that's, that's a very deeply ingrained operation of contemporary biocapital. It's this way in which everyone is encouraged ghoulishly to buy into a fundamentally <laughs> strat stratifying and kind of chiasmic kind of universalist bargain around the ideal of, of, of the universal family that everyone can have. In fact, no, it, it, it's, it's literally impossible to, for everyone to have that because uh, on a class basis, a colonial and class basis, uh, a great deal of us are laboring impossibly to, to achieve something that we will never get out of our, our efforts to provide for and people uh, the private nuclear households of, of, the, of the ruling class. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by, well, good question who? You frequently hear ads right here from Verso, University of California Press, and N Plus One. We are now looking for new publishers to advertise with us. Do you write or work for a magazine or book publisher? If you do, can you think of any group of people more interested in buying smart left-wing books and magazines than Dig listeners? Because, well, I sure can't. If you want to advertise your media product on The Dig, email me at firstname, lastname at gmail.com. That's Daniel Denver at gmail.com. That is also, incidentally, where you may send me listener letters, which, as long as they are not intensely mean, I always do my best to respond to. Okay, thank you, and back to the show. You argue that commercial surrogacy is premised on the impossible task of having a baby for someone else, an extreme manifestation, you argue, of the, of the standard fiction that babies belong to anyone at all. And you write that this is a fiction not only socially, but also biologically. And then more specifically, you write that the commercial surrogacy industry is premised on brown women being able to make white babies and, and the fiction that those white babies will not be tainted by a racial class or national other, the contamination of that other. Explain these fictions you're writing against 
and also your argument about babies in truth belonging to no one at all. Yeah, so one of the ironies to dispel right off the bat about so-called surrogacy, this uh, you know, so-called new in actuality, not new at all, reproductive uh, technology, which is actually just human labor, it's actually just pregnancy, is that it is something that disturbs, transgresses, or, you know, if you're really uh, techno-utopian and uncritical of capitalism, then it queers the family or something. Some of my critics who don't read me, I think, take it that I, I somehow think that actually existing surrogacy queers, you know, the biogenetic standard of of the of the the natural family and this is actually it's not just not what i say it's 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 it would be absurd to say that because commercial surrogacy as an industry is where you find the most virulent assertions of the idea that a baby is the the property of its genetic commissioners it's the opposite of a kind of anti-familial zone in that sense it's where the most the the ultimate of the ultimate commodity fetish exactly so you know it's useful to look uh to that sphere because what is happening there is in any way transgressive in and of itself yet (laughs) quite the contrary but because some of those assertions about about reproduction taking place there are, by virtue of their virulence, potentially open for unsettling. So what surrogacy can tell us about pregnancy and reproduction is sort of open for contestation, I think. As you say, there is, you know, something provocative about the spectacle of, uh, you know, a white baby coming out of a brown body. Nina Patel is prone to making ontological statements about the the guaranteed and stable character of race as a biological immutability. You know, in these moments, she has said things like, pure white, pure European, you can always tell, you know? Um, and it's really fascinating to try and unpack what she means there by you can always tell. Um, that this is a this is a a body that a second ago was part of another body. Where did that body come from? You know, it it in what way is it in fact distinct from the gestator who is you know? And it, it is extremely striking to witness the the choreographies in play in that medical context because you know, uh, Patel will lift the baby out and then say bring the baby to its mother. The mother is not the person lying there. It's the person waiting outside in the waiting room. And the, and those uh those constructions are crucial for, you know, for the profit making that Patel is wedded to. And part of this is emphasizing DNA in a way that crowds out other sort of biological materials that are in fact biologically speaking constitutive of of who a human is. Or what a human is. Exactly. There's a robust tradition of uh, Marxist and socialist biologists and also of uh, feminist socialist ones, not to mention kind of anti-colonial readings of, of science and particularly of genetics that, you know, that tells us that DNA is not 
self-reproducing. It doesn't make things. Um, and it is vastly overestimated as uh, and vastly over-invested in as a, a promise of the sort of coded algorithmic replication of self amongst humans. You know, um, in my book, I, I have a moment where I, I share a, a personal memory that, in my view, constitutes the origin of my interest in the black male that is the notion of sort of genetic predetermination, inheritance, and progeny. It's a memory of sitting in the back seat of the car with my nuclear family, uh, my father and my mother in the front. We had just seen a play and I asked precociously from the back seat, musing about the themes of that play, how it made any sense because Obviously, Dad, if you uh, were to suddenly find out that my brother and I were technically, genetically the children of the milkman, you wouldn't suddenly <laughs> love us any less, would you? Um, and I was going to say poor boy, but milkman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't suddenly love us any less, Dad, was a rhetorical question. But unfortunately, I got this kind of real answer in the form of a really sickening silence that struck me dumb you know I couldn't speak for the rest of that car ride and I think it has it's been the origin of my curiosity about the the violence and the scarcity and the as I say blackmail implicit in the notion that you know the given relations of blood are those that will matter most to you the only ones that will be there for you, you know, and the ones to which you will sort of be beholden. One related key contradiction in the way that commercial surrogacy fits within this racialized global reproductive order is, is how it transforms Indian women's fertility from a problem for the world into a solution for affluent white women's infertility. What, what's your analysis of the significance of it being Indian women who for so long have been a central focus of eugenic populationist anxiety and intervention, that they now find themselves at the center of commercial surrogacy, making so-called white babies. It's pretty, it's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, there are, there are other um, hubs of the industry, including Kenya, Guatemala, Laos and until recently Thailand. But as you say, it is non-innocent in my view that it is uh, in India um, that this kind of source of uh, productive or so-called reproductive labor power has been harnessed to such incredibly uh, profitable ends. Uh, I would I would defer partly to uh, the the wonderful scholar Sharmila Radrappa, who, whose book Discounted Life is partly about this deep irony that those same populations targeted by sterilization under Indira Gandhi uh, are now the ones that are uh, enrolled in uh, the assistance uh, of others' reproduction. It's non-innocent because, in a sense, this is where the capitalist market has the sort of greatest surplus to reap. Very, very few Indian women in the aggregate access healthcare workers in their lifetime. There is a deeply sort of devalued uh, sort of quantum of the gestational labor power 
um, in play. And what happens when capitalists move in in this population is they can take what has been cheapened to a you know to a to a deeper degree than any other you know gestational labor power on earth almost, and it can sort of enroll that you know in a matrix of high end world class uh, obstetric care which has the sort of side effect of really pulling the wool over the workers' eyes in that they become bought in, in some cases, at least initially, to the idea that surrogacy and normal pregnancy are completely different things. Because how could it not be? Because look at all the injections, look at all the applications of vitamins, look at all the scans, look at, you know, there is nothing similar about a gestational surrogate in India's typical experience of a surrogate pregnancy and her non-surrogate prior pregnancy that generated her 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 daughters and or sons which is why it takes you know more than one cycle of surrogate pregnancy for many of these workers to actually realize that this is very much pregnancy a body treats an embryo containing genetic material of the gestator and somebody else much the same as it does an embryo containing strangers' uh, genetic material. Genetics just isn't really that big of a deal for a human body. We are also epigenetically shaped. Donna Haraway provocatively says that, you know, reproduction doesn't really occur in, in species that carry out sexual reproduction. DNA gets scrambled more than it does pa- get passed on. And so... For people like my dad, um, incredibly invested in the idea that they are making copies of themselves, we've got bad news for you, really, um, from socialist feminist biology. You know, this is this is very much a myth. <laughs> and uh, of course, you can, you know, you can take this further. You can look at the ways in which we are porous and leaky and very much sort of filled with organisms that are crucial to sustaining us. We are in a sense being gestated by uh, uh, microorganisms, um, which is a subject taken up by artists, including Patricia Piccinini, who sort of likes to show the invisible alien surrogates who are sort of always already up in your business, uh, spooning your children um, and mothering them alongside you because the fictions of sort of bounded, clean, uncontaminated biogenetic procreation are, you know, just that. They are really fictions. And the surrogacy industry is all about the extraordinarily audacious rhetorical move of literally, you know, lifting out the flesh and blood and viscera from the abdomen of a worker and telling you that nothing about that worker remains. The no trace of her, you know, is is going to stick to the, the the baby that you carry away. As if there could be something less anti- antiseptic than gestation and birth. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. I want to talk more about the current of feminists who support criminalizing commercial surrogacy. It emanates, generally speaking, from the certain current that also opposes trans women and sex work called so-called radical feminism. It, explain what so-called radical feminism is, its origins and trajectory, and its fierce commitment to defending womanhood as what you call a sex class? It's a shifting field. Um, Rad femme, as it 
is sometimes still cold, uh, despite not being radical. Yeah, it's sort of unfortunate, <laughs> the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can also be sort of designated as cultural feminism, although that, that doesn't really immediately tell you so much. It's the phrase of Alice Eccles, a historian of revolutionary feminism, 1968 to 1973. And uh, it's a very instructive history because she she posits that this particular formation that we are now seeing all these years on still kind of dominating a lot of spaces hegemonically, particularly in the UK. It's the phobic, traumatized in a certain sense, residuum of the kind of collapse of the second wave that has become the only thing that people think of when when they when they hear the term radical feminism. So it's actually uh, the case that some women's liberation factions were virulently opposed to this this strand of thinking at the time in the late 60s, early 70s. There were trans-inclusive second wave uh, feminisms, for example. But what Alice Eccles calls cultural feminism, or you know, what can also be called ontologically oriented feminism, oriented ontologically towards the idea of the female as a biological and transhistorical constant, subject in an almost metaphysical sense to something they call female erasure. It's this, you know, it's something that was a minority, but had the sort of good fortune of not collapsing to the same extent that other parts of the, the second wave moment did. And that's got to sort of write history a little bit on behalf of of those other feminisms. And um, and is that because it was more conducive to neoliberalism or more copacetic with it? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Despite thinking of itself as radical, you know, this particular strand of feminism works incredibly well together with various forms of uh, neoliberal and or neoconservative reaction. Because it just so happens to frequently share priorities with the religious right as well. That's right. Yeah. In the mid 80s, you know, people were already saying that the, you know, abolitionist anti-surrogacy project was, quote unquote, in bed with churchmen. Um, and that the victories that a certain kind of rad femme, eco femme sort of opposition to reproductive engineering and reproductive te technology shouldn't necessarily be chalked up to its feminism, but rather to the fact that it was, you know, saying the same thing as the Catholic Church. And the ties between uh, right wing and sometimes even far right entities and actors and sources of funding and this particular kind of front of feminist struggle, these were sort of laid down in, in the 80s by cultural feminism and then continue or have had a resurgence in the 21st century in the form of, you know, collaborations between trans-exclusionary British feminists and the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., or pro-life interests such as the uh, Center for Bioethics and Culture in the U.S. and the, the European activists who are trying to criminalize uh, surrogacy uh, in The Hague or at the level of the UN. So, you know, the, the it's it's we're having a kind of second round of uh, 
rad femme pro-life alliance and that's not to say that everyone involved in opposing surrogacy for feminist reasons in the 80s was doing so for these kinds of reasons there were actually you know dissenting voices within many of the networks i don't want to ignore those but a lot of the key players um sort of leading the charge against surrogacy as a form of commodification and even as they had no problem saying slavery they are the same exact people who have authored the most brutally transphobic parts of feminist philosophy and they have spearheaded the sort of rescue industry with its deeply damaging to sex workers kind of anti-prostitution policies um you know so the you know the exclusionary radical feminist international as it were the turfs the swerfs are joined by what i what i sort of propose is is a surf component surrogate exclusionary radical feminists uh who who have no interest in actually identifying with relating to or you know god forbid speaking to uh the the, the people in question that they want to rescue from their bondage uh, they want to sort of speak over their heads about the the deeply sort of anti-human uh, commodification that they are uh, according to them suffering as you, as you just alluded to for these feminists pregnancy is is kind of is special in a in a similar way to how sex is special and so both commercial surrogacy and sex work are for them violations of something sacred you write however quote their problem as they make it known, is more abstract, more fundamental than these aspects. The elision between exploitation and rape. That's a powerful and but very complex argument. It, explain what you mean. Although it's it takes some steps to sort of argue this, but um, my sense, looking at the turfs, the swerfs, and the serfs, and um, particularly thinking about the the vision of pregnancy espoused by the, the latter, is that the, the common thread, the problem at the heart of this truncated form of uh, anti-capitalism is its vision of work as something that can be redeemed and enjoyed, um, and in fact should be. The idea behind the rad feminist sort of analysis of surrogacy as a, a, a kind of ultimate, like an the deepest form of capitalist violence that could ever be is is this idea that um, there is a moral obligation on us. And by us, I, I guess, I mean women, because that's who they're talking about, to lift ourselves out of the muck of forms of degradation that, that are in fact instituted by capitalism and colonialism and not within our individual control. It's striking to me that there isn't a conceptual equivalent for these feminists uh, of rape culture when it comes to pregnancy. You know, so, so I, I mean, one could sort of speculate, like, why don't they talk about gestational injury culture or something? You know, there is that, that strangely enough, there, there is a lot of feminist an analysis, some of which the same, the very same people are actually partial to when they're talking about something else in a different conversation yeah you have like some you have similar you have a similar brand of feminism that both says sort of like consensual sex under heterosexual sex under patriarchy is impossible so all heterosexual sex is rape but who then suggests that basically gestating for for wage labor is like even more rape or something 
Yes, it's funny. And, you know, there's something deeply pessimistic about this willingness to, you know, to talk about the lot of women, you know, in the household, in marriages with men, and even in the obstetric situation that most people experience in capitalist societies as as violent, you know. But then when it comes to the enrollment uh, of, you know, gestating bodies in a capitalist situation directly, like a, a, a formal capitalist situation rather than an informal, indirectly mediated one, i.e. the household, you know, remember the household is also, for me, a sphere of gestational work. But as soon as it gets enrolled in a in a formal relation for these people, they forget all their critiques of everything that's bad about pregnancy, motherhood, marriage, etc. That all goes out the window and suddenly, you know, you get the impression that that something deeply beautiful is being desecrated. And and you know, and I, I want to be clear, I'm not simply trying to do a a, a blunt negation of the anti-surrogacy abolitionists kind of critiques. Uh, Everything I say in the book about what's bad about the industry, you know, overlaps uh, with, you know, with with some of what they say, you know, that there is terrible lack of consent practices, there's deeply awful circumstances around bodily autonomy for surrogate workers, you know, a lot of what they're saying about the industry being bad is stuff that I also say and go out of my way to say in the book. But for them, there is something beyond that, something metaphysical about the reduction of the human to um, a commodity that they believe is being sort of singularly affected in this domain and not in others. And that's, you know, that's a kind of moral and bioconservative and strangely kind of pessimistic analysis of what it is. And certainly not a Marxist one, because when it's either rape and slavery versus pure consent and freedom, they're they're missing the the question of the freeness of of wage labor, which in the Marxist sense, workers are are doubly free. They're free to work, but they're free to starve if they don't work. So it's there's like a a nuance that they can't quite take in. Yeah, precisely. You know, and the other sort of element of sort of Marxist praxis that they miss is that, you know, having a problem with an industry is no reason whatsoever to try and quash the ability of workers in that industry to fight in and against it. Just like with garment with garment workers, the question is aren't whether you're pro textiles or anti textiles, it's whether you're pro you're in solidarity with garment workers struggles or not. Right. And you don't typically see people taking garment workers to be sort of uh, proponents of fashion or something. Th- this this sort of sensibility yeah, is, is missing from our account uh, of gestational workers. But, you know, at the same time, I do actually want to say that there is uh, that there are things we can glimpse about an alternative form of kinship in the accounts of these workers, of the the similarities and differences and realizations that can grow from the the side-by-side experience of so-called surrogate and so-called non-surrogate baby making. You know, there are unique perspectives that are being thrown up by history, you know? You make gestational surrogacy into both a model and kind of a metaphor Mm -hmm. of sorts, calling for a form of surrogacy that would, would respond to the very real problems of pregnancy rather than to the demand for genetic parenthood in the context of a global capitalist system that exploits a, a flexibilized global labor force. You sort of not only turn the surrogacy debate on its head, but you also kind of hijack it <laughs> to make this 
much more radical argument for the abolition of the family and for, I don't know, communistic kinship. Is that the right yeah. phrase? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. In a, there's a sense in which, despite having not really read any Hegel, I, I, I am given to understand, partly because I'm at the, uh, you know, I'm at the end of a, a, a book tour at the moment, at the, at the time of recording, I've, I've just been sort of learning what my book says from a whole variety of different people, which has been an incredible, you know, privilege. But it, it seems to me that I'm doing an accidental Hegelian move by sort of positing that uh, that only, you know, families will abolish the family and only a sort of real surrogacy could uh, abolish uh, surrogacy trademark, as it were, you know, and this kind of impoverished vision of what surrogacy means that contemporary biocapitalism has has instituted, which is actually the least surrogate thing ever, as I as I tried to explain. There is there is so little real solidarity, real appreciation for how distributed and entangled human and, and dependent on each other, literally co-constituted by each other, human bodies are in the surrogacy industry. There's this, you know, there's this famous <laughs> quote from Gandhi where he was asked what he thought of, you know, Western civili- civilization. And, and he said, I think it would be a very good idea. By the same token, I think something like full surrogacy, although it is a sort of unthinkable level of utopia, is something we should be, you know, bearing in mind when we think about how to organize our most intimate relations. Full surrogacy would be a situation where the authentic, original, authorized version of a relationship was, you know, no longer thinkable. That we wouldn't, there wouldn't be anything to be surrogate to because people would understand themselves as sort of the product of many mothers, you know, and and many people transgenerationally generally. Um, this is kind of already a latent reality, you know. We we I, I understand the the bedrock of life, although it is um stolen and sort of atomized and segregated by capitalist social relations, to be this kind of much more sort of tentacular, like watery bed of um you know, comradely symbiogenesis, to use a Haraway word, you know, symbiogenesis being a, a very long, complicated word to designate the process of becoming and making with. I.e. actually existing kinship relationships that are anti or non-normative, however unintentionally. I want to try arguing another side of this to ask a question I think mm-hmm. some listeners might ask, which is, I wonder if the call for abolishing the family, could miss something about how families as they exist can be not just these sort of bleak Althusserian institutions that totally are totally instrumentalized by the reigning order to impose gender, mm-hmm. class, and racial hierarchies, but also places of refuge, love, and resistance. In other words, does your provocative call for the abolition of the family, which I'm convinced by in many ways, does it politically risk making some people think that what you want to abolish is the parts, includes the parts of their families 
that they like. Yeah, it does risk that, doesn't it? It's a very emotionally scary topic. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, no, I, one thing I've been learning on the road is that you know it's best to be completely emotionally open about how scary this stuff is. Uh, I understand another part of Hegel to be a question of uh, how we recognize ourselves only in a way through these these institutions, the family and and work, for example. And it is vertiginous to the point of actually unbearability to try and think oneself you know into a situation completely outside of what we currently think of as the family you know I, I think it's maybe easier to imagine the end of capitalism than the end of the family to um <laughs> coin a phrase a much overused one there is something about the phrase family abolition that I am still persuaded by you know I think that includes its seeming kind of provocativeness does political work yeah 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 yeah. and you know i noticed that i was doing this kind of placatory scare quoting with my fingers around the phrase the family in order to signal to people in my talks that you know i'm not coming for your husband or your children and then that was sort of pointed out to me and um it, it's it's a funny one, you know. It's simultaneously true that I'm not coming for those relations uh, that whoever you are out there, hi, uh, you may have that are given to you in formats. You called, don't have to you hate know, your blood. Mother. No, exactly. In <laughs> fact, I, I I very much hope that you have comradely liberatory forms of care within your so-called biofam. You know, the, the, the xenofeminists have a category called xenofam, which um, they propose is kind of equal to or greater than biofam. But crucially, you know, your, your, your literal mother, father, uncle, aunt, whatever, may be just as sort of respectful of your strangeness and your intimacy and your 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 deserving of multiple sorts of not just deserving your need for your your right to sort of multiple relations as as any kind of more politically chosen commitment and engagement biofam can be equal to like xenofam as uh, uh, as 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 they say the xenofeminists so yeah, there is a risk. And of course, we are in this moment where keep families together and stop family separation are these enormous rubrics um, by which the anti-Trump resistance are, you know, acting by, right? And I'm, I'm far from the first to point out that there are limits to these slogans. They throw migrants under the bus who aren't affiliated to a, you know, biological unit that can be interpreted legally by the genocidal border regime as a family. And it throws, they, you know, they throw, uh, yeah, refugees from the nuclear family under the bus. For instance, it's perfectly possible to deport uh, youths to their deaths under the rubric, stop family separation, families belong together. I mean, you know, you don't have to be an expert in queer theory to understand why for some people keep families together is a is a literally sort of homicidal uh, notion the family is a very unsafe place for for many of us you know it's it's where people are likely to to get killed uh, and or raped etc at the same time obviously those strategic uses when negotiating with the status quo you know in a historical moment where you know aping the forms of the marriage based nuclear family 
being able to somehow pass a, a, a mooted biogenetic test that the Trump administration wants to apply to migrants at the Mexico-American border. They literally want to do a DNA test to guard against fake families, which harks right back to the policy in the 50s of um, testing applicants for Chinese-American citizenship, where tests were implemented to, to disqualify vast swathes of people who were said to be paper sons or paper daughters of Chinese-American naturalized people. And it was, um, there's been great scholarship on that showing how that was a, you know, a textbook imposition of a certain kind of structurally colonial notion of biogenetic familiality, because many of the so-called paper sons and daughters of the uh, trying to migrate to America from China were actually real, as it were, although you kind of want to avoid this kind of language, but they were, you know, they, they had kinship bonds that, sim that were uh, substantive, just not genetic with the people uh, that they were trying to join. So basically, I think what I'm trying to get at here is the idea that there is nothing in, ultimately, in biogenetic kind of forms of legitimation of caring relationships that serves liberatory ends in the immediate term and under a status quo that systematically tries to tear children from racialized and proletarian parents, especially mothers. You know, there are, of course, situations in which the assertion of quote unquote blood ties can be beneficial. But I think in the long run, there is, you know, there is a deep need, you know, to, to really push against the epistemic boundaries of any kind of notion of the good life predicated on the sort of the logicality and naturalness and self-reproducingness and automatic kind of worthiness of protection of the biological um, when it comes when it comes to human beings. We can say people don't belong in cages. We can say people should never be separated from one another by the state. You know, we can say people belong together. We we can really uh, the, you know the history of utopian socialism is partly defined by this kind of fight over the value of the family uh, and so-called working families. For instance, Brecht was, uh, was taken to task by some of his comrades for his commitment to the abolition of the working class family. And uh, yeah, I think that's something that I, amongst others, um, am, cur am currently reviving. <laughs> well, Sophie Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. Sophie Lewis is the author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, from Verso. Lewis is a Philadelphia-based theorist, communist, unaffiliated PhD, affiliated with the Out of the Woods Ecological Writing Collective, and an occasional translator teaching part-time for the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that all science would be superfluous if the outward appearance and the essence of things directly coincided, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
we are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but by no means least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Mm-hmm.